discussion about the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha's teachings. These Four Noble Truths were taught by the Buddha in the very first discourse that he gave after his enlightenment. The name of the discourse was the turning of the wheel of the Dharma in motion, or the turning of the wheel of the law. These Four Noble Truths really contain the whole of the teaching. And in some ways we could think of the next 45 years of discourses that the Buddha gave as an elaboration or an explanation, a discussion of these four basic truths. So tonight will be a tentative beginning at looking at them and understanding them. The first noble truth of the Buddha's teachings is the truth of suffering, of the experience in our lives and in the world of conflict, of struggle, of sorrow, all the different kinds of suffering that we experience. Very often people don't like to look at this, don't like to acknowledge it. creating a world of illusion or a world of fantasy in which this very basic fact or aspect of experience is denied or suppressed or avoided. Yet the only possible way to come to a deeper understanding of the suffering in our lives and the possibility of freedom from the suffering is if we open to it, if we begin to look directly at its nature so that instead of covering it or camouflaging it as we in our culture are particularly want to do, what's necessary and what becomes very obvious in our practice is the need and the cultivation of the ability to turn towards it, to soften ourselves, to soften our minds so that we can go into it and understand it. This truth of suffering, where is it that we find it? Where must we look? Almost any place. It's quite a predominant aspect of experience. We can look in a more macroscopic situation. We look at the situation in the world. Really, every newspaper and every news magazine, in some way, is a catalog of suffering that is going on. And if we can 
be open to it without having become desensitized, as so often happens because of the frequency of the reporting, we realize that there's actually an immense amount of suffering and sorrow that's going on. And people living in terrible conditions of deprivation, of hunger, of starvation, of disease. The situation of suffering when there's violence and there's warfare. Different kinds of brutality. The world is filled with people who are living in these very, very difficult situations and conditions. And it's necessary to open to that so that we can feel our basic connectedness. It's quite easy for us in this culture, in this society, which is generally affluent and generally free of the more stark kinds of deprivation, it's easy to get disconnected from the reality of how so much of the world lives. And so part of our practice is learning to keep our heart open, learning to stay sensitive to the reality of that suffering that's in the world. Of course, it's not only out there. It's also in each of our individual lives. We can look at the suffering that's in our lives in different ways. We can look at the universality of the process of being born and growing older and getting sick and dying. The whole aging process in which we and everybody else come into this world, we take birth, and inevitably, inexorably, part of the law, part of the nature of things, is that there's a movement towards decay. There's a movement towards death. And that movement towards decay and death involves suffering. It involves pain. And that's part of what it means to be alive, which is not to say that there's not also the joy and the happiness that comes in our lives. But we have to be willing to see and respect and appreciate the totality of what's happening so that we are not living in illusion. We're not living with wrong view, with false ideas. It really is not such a subtle, a subtle thing that we have to develop tremendous meditative understanding to realize. And when we look at our own lives and look at everybody else, we see that that's the process. We see that people are getting older. We see that the body does not stay young. It does not stay healthy all the time and then it dies. Somehow to 
relate that to ourselves, to acknowledge that that's the process that's going on. There's the suffering that is created in the mind, not just the physical aspect of getting old and sick and decay and dying, but the kind of mind-created suffering which we're not so unfamiliar with, of grief and loneliness and sadness and depression and fear and anxiety and insecurity and paranoia and boredom and restlessness and hatred. And there's quite a long list. Buddha once said that the suffering of the body is nothing compared to the suffering of the mind. And probably there are times in your practice when you have wished there was simply a nice, honest knee pain to observe. Because the suffering of the mind can become so absorbing, so overwhelming, so total. It's as if it's very difficult to get outside of it, to create some space for distance. And of course, we experience that kind of suffering from time to time. There are many people, because of the lack of any development of mindfulness or awareness, become locked into those states of suffering and really live their lives dwelling in those mind spaces, very contracted, very tight. It's like living in this very narrow prison, prison of the mind. Tremendous suffering involved. And when we relate to our own suffering in that way, really, really creates in us the possibility of compassion. Because we know, we understand what that kind of suffering is. Sometimes people still can't relate to the truth of suffering. Perhaps, you know, we're in relative health and our body is not decaying and we're not overly depressed, and life seems pretty good. You know, we're happy, and everything's going along. For those of you in that category, (laughs) I'd like to suggest an exercise for you, to sort of perhaps bring home another aspect of suffering. And that is, pay careful attention through a day to why you move. Why do you move, ever? Right? You're sitting, you sit down, it's nice and comfortable to start with. Why not just go on sitting? You sit for 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half, it starts to hurt. The knees hurt, the back hurts. Finally, it gets unbearable. So we stand to ease the pain. Fine, standing is nice. Nothing's crossed, nothing is bent. Stand, stand, stand. Enjoy the happiness of standing. How long do you stand for? Maybe you stand for half an hour, an hour, two hours, five hours. Ah, the legs get heavy. It gets very painful standing. What do you do? You begin to walk. 
So you walk to avoid the pain of standing. Fine, walk. Walking is nice. It feels great to exercise. Now you've been sitting and standing one position all the time. Walking, hmm, moving back and forth. Fine, walk. Keep on. How long can you walk for? Walk for three hours, five hours, ten hours walking. You're going to get tired, right? and the body's going to begin to hurt. What do you do? Lie down. Ah, the last. <laughs> can't sit too long. Can't stand too long. Can walk only for a certain amount of time. Fine. I'll lie down on a nice, comfortable bed. Right? The ultimate happiness. See how long you can stay lying down without changing position. Get into the most comfortable position, you know, flat on your back or on your side, whichever way you really enjoy lying down, and stay that way. It won't take long before again the body starts to hurt. And you begin to feel all kinds of painful sensation and painful, painful feelings. Pretty soon you'll have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Why? To relieve the pain. You're driven into the dining room. Now, one way of looking at it is for the enjoyment of the food, but really when you look underneath that, you see that it's really to avoid the feeling of hunger, to assuage the feeling of hunger to get over that kind of pain. When you pay attention during the day to see why it is that we keep moving, we see that movement, changing, change of posture, is a mask for dukkha, for suffering. That we keep changing postures in order to avoid feeling the suffering that comes when we simply pay attention to what's going on in this mind and body. Which is why there's so much value, for example, in sitting still and not moving. Because we begin to see what is actually there. Or to walk for a period of time. And to keep on walking so that we can see exactly what's there. So on many of these levels, whether we look in the world at large and see the mm, suffering of so many people because of social injustice, because of political injustice, because of inequality, of economy, when we look at our own lives, when we look at the inevitable process of taking birth and getting old and decay and dying, When we look at the nature of the mind, the nature of defilement in the mind, and all the kinds of suffering that arises, we just look at the very simple, ordinary activities, these changes of posture, these movements that we do. We see also that comes about because of suffering. How can we understand the nature of this? We absolutely must be willing to look at it. It is such a pervasive part of life experience 
that to resist looking at it is to simply create a tremendous amount more suffering and more tension. As I mentioned in one of the groups today, suppose an elephant walked into the meditation hall. Would you be able not to see it? would take a big effort not to see that elephant. I have walked right up here. You'd have to work very hard not to see it. That's how hard we have to work not to experience dukkha, not to experience suffering. It's such a big part of what it means to be alive. And yet we do our best to avoid it, to resist it, to push it away, not to look, not to understand, which ties us in or locks us into it even more. It prevents us from coming to a deep understanding of its nature, of its causes. The Buddha simplified the characterization of suffering in our lives in his usual very clear and concise way. The nature of it involves two aspects, two very simple aspects. All of these different um, kinds that I mentioned, it's either association with what is unwanted, whether it's things of the body, things of the mind, things of the environment. When we're associated with what we don't like, we suffer. And when we're parted, or separated from what we do like, we suffer. That's the nature of suffering. When we're, when we're together with the unpleasant, we're in a struggle, we're in a conflict. And when we're separated from what is, from what is pleasant to us, or what we like, or what is dear to us, so then we're in conflict. This happens a lot. This happens a lot in our lives because everything keeps changing. Sometimes there are things we like, sometimes things we don't like. We hold on, we try to hold on, try to push away. Is there any sense or is there any value in this conflict for us? Is there any way of turning this struggle or transforming this suffering into insight? That's really the the question for us. Because the truth of suffering becomes very apparent, very real to anybody who looks, who opens their eyes and really begins to pay attention to experience. It is so apparent, so obvious. So as we become more aware as we allow ourselves to feel it, to open to it, is there any way that it's useful for us? Actually, there's a tremendous value in becoming aware of the suffering or the conflict or the struggle, whether it's in our lives or in the situation in the world, in our practice here. If we open to it, if we're willing to go into it and explore and investigate rather than resist or avoid it, 
it becomes possible to understand the causes of suffering. It becomes possible to go deep enough into the experience to see what the causal conditions are for that suffering to arise. And that's the second noble truth of the Buddha's teachings. The first truth is the opening to the suffering that exists. And the second is the investigation of what its causes are. And as the Buddha explored it, he basically underwent the same exploration, although with perhaps slightly more powerful mind, as we are doing and in our own practice. We're looking at the suffering and we're exploring the causes. What did he find? He can, he can, his teaching can give us a, a map or a framework for our investigation. And he saw that the cause of suffering, the cause of sorrow, is attachment, is clinging, is grasping, is craving. Craving to hold on, craving to get rid of. The wanting mind. Attachment to that which is changing inevitably brings suffering. The more you hold on to something which in its nature is changing and transforming, the greater the attachment, the greater the suffering. The image for the, that has come to mind sometimes for this suffering caused by attachment. Remember, things have changed in recent years, but you know, when we were little, growing up, do you remember the kind of very sticky, gooey adhesive tape you know, that was used? And sometimes you'd, you needed to wrap a bandage on your arm or leg, and it was very sticky. And what it felt like when you had to rip the adhesive off, it was painful, it hurt. Why? Because it was sticking. To the degree that our mind sticks, as it gets ripped off by the wheel of change, there's suffering, there's pain, there's dukkha. What is it that we get attached to? We get attached to almost anything. And the mind has this wonderful capacity. But in order to maybe take a clearer look at it, it might be helpful to see certain big categories of attachment which most of us fall into again and again. One of the major areas of attachment for people all over the world is attachment to sense pleasures, to sense desires. We get attached to the pleasant feelings, pleasant sights and sounds and smells and tastes and sensations in the body and thoughts and emotions. Whatever is pleasant, we get attached to. And we keep seeking more and more and more. 
generates more craving, more wanting. As if that movement of clinging or craving or wanting is somehow going to be fulfilling for us. And we do it again and again and again. How many pleasant experiences have we had in our lives? Countless, countless of all kinds. And in that way, we've actually been very blessed and very fortunate. Because most of us have had very fulfilling, enriching lives in that area. And it's really from that, to a large extent, that we're all here. Because in some way, the insight or the wisdom has developed that even though they're pleasant, even though they're nice, they they are not actually fulfilling. They don't bring about any lasting sense of contentment or wholeness or peace because they're constantly changing. And so that really brings up a question of what we do with our lives. Are we leading our lives or do we set our lives up for the purpose of garnering more and more pleasant experience? Is that how we're going to choose to devote our energy? Is that the kind of life we want to create? More and more pleasant experience. Where does it leave us? At the end of 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, suppose we've led a life like that and enjoyed everything. Where are we? Just for a moment, give you a nice little exercise to do. Think of the most wonderful, ecstatic moment you've had in your life. The most pleasure, the most enjoyment, the most fantastic, the most blissful. Where is it now? Now we We could have had the most wonderful experience and it's all so essentially empty and insubstantial because it keeps changing. There's nothing to hold on to there. It's just it's constantly, constantly dissolving, fading away. And so even the most wonderful kind of experience that is possible to have does not really give us anything lasting. It doesn't create in us that sense of wholeness, that sense of peace that we're really looking for. I can't resist telling the Nasruddin story, which many of you have doubtless heard. <laughs> but it so well illustrates this point. Nasruddin was outside one day looking for his key. He was looking on the ground, right under a lamppost. He was looking and looking and looking and looking, and his friends come, and they start looking and looking and looking. Everybody's on the ground searching for the key. They can't find it. His friends ask Nasruddin, well, where did you lose it? Nasruddin says, I lost it in the house. So I said, why are you looking here, under the lamppost? He says, there's more light here. (laughs) We do, and are doing, 
exactly that. We keep looking for fulfillment, for happiness, for satisfaction, for completion in a place that it's not to be found. And so it's going to be a very long look. (laughs) Doomed to failure, doomed to frustration. And so really getting, getting a very clear sense And again, it's so easy to know this and understand it intellectually because, to me anyway, it makes so much sense. You know, it seems so logical and so obvious and so common sense. So it's not hard to understand intellectually or conceptually. What is hard to do is to translate that knowing in our minds into how we live so that when the next time the mind is caught up in a desire, in a wanting, in thinking that our happiness depends on getting the right meditation cushion, or having two bananas, or getting a lot of notes on the bulletin board. (laughs) If somehow we can remember reflect or apply some wisdom at that time, just remember that whatever it is that we want is just, it's going to come, it's going to go, or it's not going to come and go. (laughs) And in any event, it is not actually going to do it for us. That gives the mind a lot of space, a lot of freedom. It really... this is not quite a word, de-addicts the mind, frees the mind from addiction. Because that holding on, or that desiring, that wanting, is so painful. It's a tension in itself. The wanting mind is suffering in itself, and it leads to suffering. It doesn't lead, it doesn't lead to happiness. Kind of... um, corollary to this attachment to sense pleasures is the attachment we have to our bodies. And that's a pretty deep attachment. It's, it's pretty deeply conditioned. Does it make sense to be attached to this thing? Right? How is it going to end up not in a very pleasant state. This, this, actually, the, the Buddha's teachings are so wonderful, they're so graphic. <laughs> there's, there's a whole, the whole long chapter on different kinds of meditation, corpse meditation. And, and there are pages and pages of how you contemplate the corpse on different stages of decomposition. It's not just, not just a fresh corpse. You know, but then you watch it as it gets bloated and as it gets blue and purple and worms and goes on and on and on in very graphic terms. Powerful to see what this actually is about. This is how it's going to end up. Why are we holding on to it so tightly? And why, why is there so much clinging and attachment? And this is not to say, and people often misinterpret this as thinking we should have aversion for it and we shouldn't take care of it and it's, it's 
denying the body. It's not that at all. It's respecting it for the, for the vehicle that it is in terms of our practice. It's taking care of it. But without attachment, without, without grasping at it. One time, we had this wonderful Cambodian monk come and visit, Mahagosananda, who's one of the few remaining monks from Cambodia. He was outside of the country when they had that terrible fighting, killing so many people. He's done tremendous work with the Cambodian refugees and bringing the community together. And he's just brimming over with metta. And he's giggling all the time. And he's wonderful. This is very, very lovable and cute. <laughs> so one day he came here. Um, and when he gives talks, he likes to surround himself with all kinds of books and texts. And he takes from this book and takes from this book. And we had a three-month course a couple of years ago. He picked up this one book. And he was reading the meditation on the loathsomeness of food. And what it was, what it was a description of what happens actually when you eat food. You, know, you take the food in the mouth, and then you chew it, and it breaks down and gets mixed up with the saliva, and it gets all mushy and gooey, and you know, then you swallow it, and then it describes what happened to it in the stomach, and as it goes through the intestine, you know, and as it comes out, very graphic description of this process of eating. And the reaction of people was so interesting. People got very upset. Right? He, was, he was just reading this, this description. People got very upset because, you know, why is there so much aversion? Why is there so much hatred? And there was no aversion in it. And there was no hatred. It was a simple description of what happens. But we so do not like to look at that side of things. We so like to see only the beautiful side and only the pretty side and only the attractive side that we do our best to... It's an evening for making up words. Cosmeticize. Cosmeticize the unpleasant. Instead of simply looking, instead of simply saying, yes, this is how it is, this is what's happening. And the power of the teachings, the power of the Buddha's enlightenment in our own practice is to learn to see things as they are, to see the truth of things, which is very disillusioning. And that's exactly what the practice is about. It's to disillusion us so that we can see things clearly, see things accurately. When we do that, it very much helps to decondition this attachment to the body, this clinging to the body, because we see it for what it is. That does not mean aversion, and it does not mean neglect. It means seeing the essential process of decay that's part of it, the fact that it's going to die and end up a bloated corpse, that that is the nature of it. So when we open our eyes to the truth of what happens, it helps to free the mind from the craving, from the aggression. We're not, we're not so desperately trying to keep the body a certain way. Okay, so this is one aspect of attachment that's very 
is very prevalent in our lives. Attachment to sense pleasures, thinking that that's where happiness lies, attachment to the body. Another whole field of attachment, which is just as strong and the cause of as much suffering for ourselves and everybody else in the world, is attachment to opinion and view. We all have an amazing number of opinions about things, about everything. You know, you mention any topic and almost everybody has an opinion about it. And sometimes the opinion is based on some knowledge, and most often it's not based on anything. It's just just our opinion. And we get so attached to it. I mean, you look what's happening in the world because of attachment to opinion about just the most, the most absurd thing of all is, is the violence and conflict because of differing religious views, different, different spiritual ideas. People have different names for God or how, how practice should be done, and then they start killing one another. <laughs> it happens. I mean, it sounds funny, but it's really a tremendously sad state of affairs. You know, because there's so much real suffering involved in that. Attachment to view about social systems and political systems. Attachment to idea about food. You know, this food is good for you and that food is no good for you. And Sometimes it comes to blows. <laughs> Attachment to views about practice is very... Um, very difficult to let go of that one. And it, it was something that I was working a lot with, with Upandita. Just letting go of the opinion about how things should be or how the practice should go. That willingness to totally surrender. And it's very hard because in some way it means at least for certain times or in certain contexts, really dying to our own past, letting go of our personal history, our story, our past experience, letting go of all that in an effort to see things new, to see things fresh, to see things without the burden of all that past accumulation. And it takes a lot of practice and a lot of sensitivity because we can want to be open and we can want to surrender and still be carrying a lot of this baggage with us. Take a look the next time in the practice when you find that there's strong resistance. You know, the resistance in mind, the rebelliousness in mind. See if in some way it's connected to an attachment to view. This is okay, but I really know better. I know what's good for me. The Buddha knew a lot, but he doesn't know my story. (laughs) He doesn't know really what I need now. And certainly not these guys teaching. (laughs) Just see how connected you know, the different kinds of resistance 
that come up in practice, see, and, and it's really a, a question of investigation, of, of your exploring this question for yourselves. See if it's connected in some way to some attachment to an opinion you have, you know, about, about the practice, about how you should be doing the practice, because it's a very, it's a very great, um, it's a very great source of conflict in our minds. There's one line from the third Zen patriarch, which is really wonderful, where he says, do not seek the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. If we could cease to cherish opinions, which doesn't mean also not to have any ever, but not to be attached to them, to see that they're opinions, that's all. If we can cease to cherish them, cease to be attached to them, that allows us the possibility for looking at something with really new eyes, to really be open, to surrender to what is happening just in that moment, without carrying into the moment a lot of our past conditioning. So that's another big area of attachment, to really look at, not just kind of cogitate you know, intellectually about, but to apply it in your practice to see in what way attachment to view causes suffering, causes conflict or struggle. Because it does a lot. It's a major cause. The third kind of attachment that the Buddha spoke of is attachment to what he called rites and rituals as a way of becoming free. And we do lots of different kinds of practices. We do lots of different kinds of things. Not everything we do leads to freedom. And I think it's good to develop some maturity of mind and some discriminating wisdom so that we can see where a particular practice is leading. It's not to simply blindly believe something, but to examine for oneself, to investigate what is being cultivated in a particular practice. There's another, there's another aspect of this which was pointed out very mm, tremendously skillfully by Trungpa Rinpoche in his book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism which has to do with the, um, how the mind can subvert spiritual practice, even practices that are actually leading to liberation, but how they can be subverted into spiritual materialism, where they become, instead of vehicles for freeing the mind, simply become vehicles for strengthening the sense of self and I and ego where we start identifying so much with our practice, with a technique as a way of bolstering the sense of self-importance or self-aggrandizement. That's really a subversion of what practice is about. And it's very important to, 
to be wary of that. It's a particular occupational ha- hazard of yogis, of meditators, of all traditions. Now you see it, this is in combination with attachment to view, attachment to opinion, in all the various um, teachings of, and you see it, you see it in all of them, you know, in the formulation of this way is the best, or this way is the highest, or this way is the quickest, or this is the diamond vehicle, or the supreme vehicle, or the whatever. And, and everything else is not quite it. What is that doing? That's just, that's just causing more separation, more conflict, more sense of importance, and it has nothing to do with the Dharma. Again, from the third, the third Zen patriarch, he said, there is one Dharma, not many. And distinctions arise from the clinging needs of the ignorant. Dharma means truth. It's not that there are different truths depending on where you live. And what our task is, is to explore what is true. How do we do that? We do it by looking, by examination. So there's attachment to sense desire, to sense pleasure, that craving or wanting mind, attachment to the body, attachment to opinions, spiritual materialism. The last attachment that I mentioned tonight is the root of all the others. And so it, it over and over again becomes the subject of our awareness, of our investigation, because this is the one out of which all the others grow. And that is the attachment we have to the concept of self, to the concept of I. This concept or idea of self has been so deeply conditioned in us and we've become so identified and so attached to it that it becomes exceedingly difficult to see things simply as they are without adding the I or the mind to it. So when a sensation comes or a sound comes or a thought comes or an emotion comes, can we simply see it? The thought is the thinker. The thought is thinking itself. There's no one to whom the thought belongs. And the emotions feel themselves. An example or an image which may help to illustrate the difference between the concept of self from the actuality of momentary experience arising and passing away. Again, an image which we've mentioned in many courses, that of the constellation, the Big Dipper. Now, you go outside at night and you look up. If the sky is clear, you see the Big Dipper. You see the stars and there's the Dipper. But since you're all experienced yogis, I'm sure you know very well that there is not actually a Big Dipper up there. The Big Dipper is a concept which we put on to that constellation of stars, to that relationship of stars. Big Dipper is a name, it's an idea, it's a concept 
which is an overlay onto the experience of the stars. But what does that concept do if we don't see it as a concept? What it does is to effectively separate in our experience those stars from all the other stars in the sky. It's like we separate out that particular group, we give it a name, we call it Big Dipper, and think that it's separated from all the rest. We do the same thing with this. There's a certain constellation of experience, which is also continually changing, of sight and sound and thought and emotion. And we give a name to this constellation. Call it Joseph, or any one of your names. And we forget that that's only a concept which is put onto certain very basic elements of experience. Just like Big Dipper is put onto the stars. And just like that concept effectively separates out those stars from the rest, so attachment to this concept of self, of I, also effectively separates out this experience from all the others. I'd like to do a little experiment in selflessness tonight, just through one particular sense door. Let all of your attention go into seeing. Just seeing. And as the first step in this, see if you can distinguish the seeing from the sensations around the eyes and in the body and the face. So you really see those as two distinct phenomena. There's, there's what is seen, and then there are the sensations that one feels. Okay, is, is the distinction clear that those are two different things? Okay, now just stay with the seeing aspect. Just and stay soft. You don't have to. It's not looking. It's just seeing. And stay soft and receptive, and just let the color come in. And it's as if all we are in this moment is seeing. Okay, when we're aware in that way, just seeing. What's the difference between? This, and this, and this, and that, and that. Remember, we're just seeing now. Why is this color, which is seen, more me than this color, or this color, or that color? Who's making that, who's making that distinction, that separation, if we're just seeing? Right? When we're just seeing, what we are is the totality of what is seen. What we are in that moment is the totality of everything that's seen. All the colors. There's no separation. There's no boundary. There's no division. But it's only when we put a concept on it, it's my body, my arm, my shirt, we create the division, we create the separation, and so we live very isolated lives. In each moment, what we are
is what is known in that moment. Whether it's sight or sound or smell or taste or sensation or thought or emotion. We are the sequence of these phenomena. No self, no I, no me. But just like Big Dipper, even though it's a concept, it has a certain use because when we look up at the the sky and see Big Dipper and trace out the constellation, you can find the the North Star from it. And that's very helpful for people who need to know where North is. So it has a use. There's actually actually something useful about the concept. In exactly the same way, there is a useful concept. There's a use for the concept of I and self and Joseph. So it's not that we throw it out, but we understand that it is just an idea, just a concept. So the attachment to it does not cause us suffering, does not cause us sorrow. Attachment to desire, attachment to opinion, attachment to spiritual materialism, attachment to the concept of self. These are the cause, these attachments are the cause of suffering, of conflict in our lives. The first noble truth is the truth of suffering. The second noble truth of the Buddha's teaching is the cause of suffering. I think we'll leave three and four for another talk. I think an important question for you to ask yourselves, really at this at this time in the retreat, is whether or not there is the willingness to actually see what's true. Because what's true may very well not fit what we'd like to be true or our idea or opinion of what's true. But are we willing to open up and to see what is actually going on? What happens when you take food? What is that process like? Why do we move? Why is there this constant change of posture? Why do we eat? Why do we sleep? How is the body behaving? What does it feel like? What is the nature of the mind? Because this question is really the foundation for any further deepening. Because as we go on, and as the practice unfolds, we become more sensitive We become more um, aware of the suffering of the dukkha that is part of our life. And so we have to have a strong commitment to, to the willingness to see, the willingness to look at it. Because it's only through that willingness that we can really understand it and really come to a place of freedom. Okay, thank you. Can do some walking meditation now.
unless you would like to just sit and see what impels you to move. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.